chapter 1, as we desire to draw closer to the Lord, the most direct route is through His Word. Because it's in the Bible that God has revealed Himself to us. and We place a priority on the preaching and teaching of God's Word because we believe that that is what brings us to faith in Christ. We believe that is what makes us more like Christ in the process of sanctification. And today I want to share with you from Colossians 1 verses 1 through 5, Hope when the world is falling apart. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Lord, once again, we come before you and submit our petition, not asking for healing, health, or finances, but asking for edification, asking, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and that we would listen particularly to what you are saying to us today through your word. Father, I pray that we would tune out all other noise and distractions and that at this moment it would be just us and you Lord, I pray for those folks who are in need of hope today that are feeling overwhelmed and discouraged. I pray that today they would find the source of hope and that they would live on that rock. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul begins his letter to the Colossian church with a word of hope. Did you notice that? As you read, survey the letters of Paul in the New Testament, he wrote uh, 13 of them, 14 if he wrote Hebrews. He does not start all of them the exact same way, but in this letter to these people, he begins with a word of hope, and I want to do the same for you today. I want to give you hope. I hear and sense and notice that people all around are feeling less than hopeless at times because of what's going on in our country. And I thought today would be a good day just to refocus us on our source of hope. But to begin with, I want to address some misconceptions about hope that actually lead people to be less than hopeful. If we don't truly understand what hope is and we try to manufacture hope somewhere else, the end result is that you're going to be even more hopeless than you were in the beginning. Uh, the world today seems to see hope as a positive outlook. It's just uh, this, this positive outlook in which we convince ourselves that uh, better things are coming in the future. And so, so our idea of hope today is just that we have enough imagination to imagine that things are going to get better. In some ways, it is simply a coping mechanism to help us deal with our currently bad situation uh, by uh, imagining a more favorable fantasy. Uh, when we do this, we are at risk of losing all hope because just the fact that you can envision a better future 
doesn't mean a better future is coming. I'm reminded of that as I read through the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was telling the people, judgment is coming. If you don't change course, if you don't repent, if you don't turn, God's judgment is coming. The Babylonians are going to come. They're going to attack Jerusalem. We are going to lose our favored position. And do you know that the people of Israel were much more hopeful than Jeremiah was? No, that's not going to happen. We're not going to fall. We would never succumb to that. We're God's chosen people. But let me tell you, just because they imagined that things were going to get brighter did not mean that it was fulfilled. And for those who were placing their hope just in the likelihood of a better, brighter future, they were severely disappointed. But you know, in other ways, uh, it's an act of willful ignorance. Sometimes what people call hope today is actually willful ignorance whereby they ignore the unpleasant reality for a more favorable fantasy. That is, they can't cope with what they see in reality and so they ignore the facts and they simply imagine that it's going to be better. Let me tell you something. God never called you and I to ignore facts. Even though he has called us to be a hopeful people, we are hopeful in spite of bad current situations. It is interesting to me that, that people do have limits to their fantasies to make it possible. Uh, they don't uh, imagine that God's going to rain down $100 bills from the sky. They just imagine that things are going to get better significantly from what they are. This type of hope may be best described as our desire for the most positive outcome to any given situation. Sometimes we look at people and we say, man, I wish I was as hopeful as they do because they just seem to think that things are going to get better. However, if the situation we are in has too many negatives and we cannot convince ourselves that it's going to get better, then we lose hope. And we've seen people who have this false idea of what hope is, and when they look around and it goes from bad to worse to worse to more bad, then all of a sudden they don't even have the ability to muster up enough imagination to think it's going to get better. And I'm afraid that that's happened to some people in our country today. Because of our current situation, some people are less hopeful because of recent events. When we think about the coronavirus that created a pandemic in our lifetime and spread across the globe and across our country, then the shutdown that took place that locked everything down and closed businesses and closed schools, and then the economy that is reeling because of that and the lack of revenue and commerce, and then, then comes the injustice that we see on a videotape, and then race riots as a result of that, and then on top of all of that, you've got politicians playing politics everywhere on this thing. I'm telling you, if you're just looking at the landscape, it's no wonder that some people are less than hopeful. But did you know that the Colossians had also experienced some major upsets around the time of this writing? You see, that's what makes these words so significant in the opening lines of the letter to the Colossians is because of what they had recently experienced. Paul is writing to them about hope. 
At one time, Colossae had been this major metropolis in the ancient world. It, it was described as, by one historian as being populous. It was very heavily populated, wealthy. It had quite an industrial section. And it was large. It, it was spanning and it was sprawling. In fact, it had once accommodated the Persian king Xerxes the Great and his army when he was on his way to invade Greece because it was on the main route from Euphrates in the east to Ephesus in the west. And so think about that for a moment. Uh, you know, that, that, that indicates that it was a large city if the king made that his stop and his entire army could be taken care of, housed, fed, animals, service, supplies gotten, all those things. So that's the history of Colossae. But a few years before this writing, the highway had been rerouted through the neighboring towns of Laodicea and Hierapolis. And so if you're thinking about a map, Colossae is in the modern-day uh, country of Turkey. And you had Colossae to the south, and then you had Laodicea in the northwest, and then you had Hierapolis to the northeast, kind of making a, a triangle about 10 miles apart. Well, for centuries, the main road had ran right through Colossae, which is why it had grown to such a large city. But, for some reason, the road had been rerouted some years before this letter, and because of that, uh, even though those mile, towns were only 10 miles away, it caused Colossae to go from a booming city to a small rural town. Now, 10 miles doesn't sound like much to us today, but in their day and time, that was an entire day's journey to go there and come back. 10 miles away, that means 20 miles round trip. That means at an average speed, it takes you over three hours to walk there and over three hours to walk back. And so, as you can imagine, if the main trade route's been, trade route's been moved 10 miles away from the city, those people aren't going to journey down to Colossae anymore. Kind of like the towns on old Route 66. Uh, for you kids that don't know what Route 66 is, uh, Lightning McQueen. Remember that, that new interstate that came in and then Radiator Springs is this podunk little town because the traffic doesn't travel through there anymore. Well, that's the idea with Colossae. Where that traffic flows makes a huge difference as to what that landscape, what that town is going to be like. And because that road was moved, it caused their bright future to go dim. Just think about all the people who lost their livelihood due to this drastic change in commerce. Now, I understand we have just went through something where this coronavirus caused companies to shut down, small businesses to shut down. Some of them are not going to recover from this. Some of them are going to close uh, forever. And all of a sudden, some companies that had a bright future, had the best first quarter that they'd ever have, all of a sudden have the worst second quarter they've ever had. And it looks like it's miles to try and climb back up to where they were before. And all of a sudden, this bright future goes dim. Well, let me tell you something. The same thing happened to the Colossians. Just imagine all the livelihood. If this had been the main trade route, all the inns in which people were housed, all the food that was served, all the wool that was sold because they produced wool there, all the stables that would have closed down. I'm telling you, there were people who lost their entire livelihood 
because that road was rerouted and it is no longer going through Colossae. And if that wasn't bad enough, this city was decimated by a major earthquake shortly before or shortly after Paul's writing. We don't quite understand the devastation that an earthquake brings. But imagine this. Paul's writing a letter to the Colossians and he says, I thank God for your hope. And he's writing to people who are living in a town that's no longer what it once was. It's a shadow of what it was economically before. On top of that, there is a major earthquake that has just happened that has decimated that city. So it goes from bad to worse. You know, I don't understand earthquakes, thank God, we live in Virginia. But Colossae, located in the modern-day country of Turkey, is a seismically active area with a complex zone of tectonic plates. And in fact, when you look into this, you will find that the Eurasian plate and the African plate and the Arabian plate all meet in Turkey. And so you talk about seismology, there is tectonic movement that happens there all the time. These earthquakes occur when those fault lines underneath the surface experience friction from the collision of those tectonic plates. And I, as I was studying this, I thought, Lord, you are so amazing. You take something that happened historically 2,000 years ago, and it has a direct application to where we are today. You know those racial tensions that are, that are exploding right now? Those were fault lines underneath the surface, and it took the right amount of friction for that to explode onto the scene. But talking about this earthquake... Did you know, I, I looked this up, Turkey has had two earthquakes this year already. One in January uh, with a 6.0 magnitude on the Richter scale. One in February with a 6.7 magnitude Richter scale. So let me just give you an idea of what that's like. How many of y'all remember the 1994 Los Angeles earthquake y'all remember that the pictures of the bridges being broken down gas mains broken and fire pillars going up in the street that was a 6.7 earthquake it lasted 20 seconds and it did 30 billion dollars worth of damage to california so if turkey is prone to those types of earthquakes and Colossae had a major earthquake around the time of this writing. If it was anything like that, just imagine how those ancient buildings were affected by that. So all of a sudden you have a people who are not just looking at trying to rebuild an economy. Not just looking at trying to diversify and find different revenue streams to come in. But you're looking at a people who now are seeing their entire city decimated, destroyed like a bomb has went off there. From a human perspective, these people did not have much reason to have hope. From a human perspective, we're not going to look at them and say, hey, you guys ought to be hopeful. You ought to have a hope. Why? Because of our misconception of hope, we say, they can't imagine a better future. Can you, can you even figure out how long it would take to try and rebuild this? And how would they rebuild it? Because they don't have the commerce anymore, and they're not going to get the commerce anymore because the road has been moved 10 miles away. So I'm telling you, from a human perspective, these people do not have much reason to be hopeful, yet... Paul has the audacity to write to these Colossian Christians and remind them that in spite of all this, 
they have a reason to hope. And I want to do the same for you today. I know that there's trouble going on in our country. I know that we haven't seen the end of the coronavirus. I know that we haven't seen the end of the racial tensions. I know that we haven't seen the end of politics. But I am telling you, you still have a reason to have hope. How about us? Our economy has been severely affected by the shutdown. With the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression. Did you know that? The highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression. And now the fault lines of racial tension are erupting in a social earthquake. And to many, it feels like our world is falling apart. To many, it feels like it is a hopeless situation. But I'm here to tell you, there is hope. And I want to mine that out of God's Word for you this morning. And so let's take a look at this text. Let's look back at Colossians. Colossians is one of Paul's prison epistles. Written while he was in prison. All of this, all of this impacts the way we read Colossians. What has went on in their town recently? What is Paul going through when he writes this? Don't miss how this letter begins. Look at that first line. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, watch these next words, by the will of God. By the will of God. Paul, an apostle, by the will of... It's interesting that Paul starts there. Paul doesn't always use that same introduction. But in this letter where he's getting ready to talk to these people about the hope that they have in Christ... He introduces himself as Paul the Apostle by the will of God. This is not just a statement to reinforce his title. He's not just saying, hey, I'm an apostle and you better respect it because it's God's will that I'm an apostle. No, he's not one of those religious leaders. It's an expression of his faith and get this, his Christian worldview. Right? This year is all about worldview, 2020 vision. I want to see the world as it actually is then that means I need to see it how God sees it. I need to have a Christian worldview. Your Christian worldview ought to be different than your neighbor's non-Christian worldview. Your Christian worldview ought to be distinctly different from your co-worker's non-Christian worldview. Paul is expressing his faith that he believes that it was God's will that he was an apostle and that by his Christian worldview he sees everything either as God's will or not God's will. Get this, he's saying, I am what I am and I am where I am because God willed it. I am what I am and I am where I am because God willed it. You know, Paul's the consummate teacher. Have you noticed that in his writings? I mean, he's not just corresponding. He's teaching. Man, he's good at teaching. And as the consummate teacher, not only is he expressing that this is his worldview, that he is what he is and where he is because of the will of God, he's digging a footer. He's digging a theological footer upon which his statement of hope is going to write. He knows what he's going to write next. He knows that he's writing to a discouraged people, people who are facing economic decline, people who have lost homes and businesses, and he knows that he's about to talk to them about hope. And so he digs this foundation, he digs this footer, and he says, listen, 
I am what I am, and I am where I am because God willed it. Catch the subtle implication. I am what I am. I am Paul, the apostle, Jesus Christ, by the will of God. I am what I am. What are you, Paul? I'm a Jewish-born man called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul believed that that was God's will. When he looked at his life, he didn't think it was coincidence or happenstance that he was born a Jew. He didn't think it was coincidence or happenstance that he was born a man. He didn't think it was coincidence or happenstance that he had been called to be an apostle. And he didn't think it was coincidence or happenstance that he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He saw it as God's will for his life. I am what I am. And I am where I am. Where are you, Paul? Well, he is in prison in Rome. Falsely accused, waiting trial that may result in his death. And he says, I am what I am, and I am where I am, because God willed it for me as his child. You don't hear him bemoaning and complaining the fact that he's falsely accused. You don't hear him raising a petition because he has been jailed now for almost four years. You don't hear him lamenting because he's about to face Nero, who would later become the most vicious opponent of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And there is a good chance that he could be slaughtered or lit up, burned alive to light Nero's gardens or thrown into the Colosseum to face the animals as a show for the Gentiles. He does not lament any of that he says I am what I am and I am where I am because God willed it to be so what's he saying he's saying by the way Colossians you are what you are and you are where you are because your heavenly father willed it look at the flow of this text once again Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I am what I am, and I am where I am because God willed it. Verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ Jesus, which are at Colossae. He knows who he's writing to. He's writing to saved people, saints, people who have been saved and are being sanctified by Jesus Christ. He is writing to people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and he's writing to people who are in or at Colossae. He knows. He knows what his audience is dealing with. Understanding that simple truth alone, understanding that simple truth alone can radically change your perspective from one of despair to hope. Do you understand what Paul is doing here? He's laying that theological foundation for them to step back and refocus and say, well, wait a minute, before I start complaining about everything that's going wrong in my life because of where I'm at and because of who I am, I need to stop and say, wait a minute, I'm a child of God and my Father directs my life and I am what I am and I am where I am because my loving Heavenly Father has willed it to be so. I'm telling you, friend, if you and I fully understood that, it would radically change our perspective. It would change a lot of despair to hope, understanding that we are what we are and we are where we are because our Heavenly Father decreed it. You are what you are. Listen, race. You are the race that you are because God willed it to be so. I can't help that I'm a white man. I can't help it. I had no say in that. That's God's decree. 
God willed for the races to be. White, black, yellow, red, whatever it may be. I'm sure there's some people who take offense at simply using those colors. I'm just telling you, I am what I am because God willed it to be so. I don't think that makes me better than anybody else. I don't think it makes me lesser than anybody else. But I do believe it's the will of God. Watch this, young people. You are the gender that you are because God willed it to be so. Do you know the greatest phenomenon that's going on in our generation is something called gender dysphoria? Meaning that we have adolescents who are dysphoric or confused about the gender, the biological gender that they are. And there's many of those kids that are desperately hurting so much so that they want to submit themselves to surgeries and medications to change their physical appearance to look like a different gender. When If you and I would just understand, I am what I am by the will of God. I'm a man because that's what God wants me to be. You're a woman because that's what God wants you to be. And those are the only two options and they're not interchangeable. You are the age that you are. And I don't like that. <laughs> I feel older every single day. But you know what? I am what I am because God willed it to be. I believe my occupation has to do with the will of God. I, I, I am what I am as a pastor because this is God's will. If I didn't think it was God's will, I would not stand in this pulpit today. I would not do that disservice to you. But I believe that it's God's will for me to do this. Where you are, because God willed it. Where are you? You're in the year 2020. Mercy. We're in it, aren't we? I don't know what's going to happen next. And I could sit back and say, oh, I long for the good old days. Back in 92 when I was in my first senior year. You could pine around for the 50s or the 60s or the 70s or the, whatever decade you miss the most. Well, I'm just telling you, you are where you are because God willed it. You're in 2020. And it's not the same as the other years, but it's the year that God has you in. You're in the country that God has willed you to be in. Why are you an American? Well, other than Lorraine, I don't know of any other immigrants that have come here. <laughs> And even that, I believe, is directed of the Lord. So you're in the country that you're in. We can, we can fuss and complain about it. All the Republicans, all the Democrats, all the governor, all the president. And sure, I've got opinions too. I'm not going to share with you at this time. I'm just telling you, you're in the country that God wants you to be in because he willed it to be so. You're in the state that God wants you to be in because he willed it to be so. I think it's interesting that Paul begins his letter to the Colossians when he's about to lay down a hope sandwich on them. That he says, I am what I am and I am where I am by the will of God. Ergo, you are what you are and where you are because it's the will of God. You're in Colossae because that's where God wanted you to be. Look again, verse 4 and 5. Paul goes on to write after in verse 3, giving thanks to God, praying for them always. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. Listen, he's not trying to inspire them to hope. 
He's not simply saying to them, take hope, have hope, it's going to get better. No, he's saying, you have hope. You have hope that's laid up for you in heaven because of your faith in Christ, because of your standing as a child of God. You have hope in heaven for you. Let me define for you what hope actually is. It, it, is, not, it is not an imagined scenario based on fantasy. Hope is a confident expectation of future good. Good is coming based upon either evidence of the past. Oh, good things have been happening leading up to this point. Good things last month, good things this month, good things this week. And because of that evidence, I believe good things are still going to come down the line. So hope is a confident expectation of good based upon evidence of the past or the trustworthiness of the person who makes the promise. Well, I went for a job interview today, and the guy said, I've got it. I haven't gotten called yet. I mean, they haven't sent me for my drug test yet, but, I, you know, I'm hope. I have hope. I've got confidence that it's trustworthy. It's going to happen. So understand that. Real hope is based on a track record of evidence or it is based on the trustworthiness of the person who is making the promise. There are two legs upon which hope stands. Both are mentioned in this verse. Look again with me if you would. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, where have you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. One is the gospel and the other is heaven. One is past evidence and one is a future promise. That's the two legs that every believer's hope is standing on. That's the two legs that the Colossians' hope is standing on. Even though they've had an economic downfall, even though they've had an earthquake that has radically decimated their city, their hope stands on two legs that are not shaken. One is the gospel, the other is heaven. If anything gives you hope, it should be the gospel. If anything gives you hope, it should be. Look, that's not just preacher talk. Look with me if you would. You got your Bible here. Go to Romans chapter 5. If anything gives you hope, it should be the gospel. If you're going to have any type of hopeful expectation that something good is coming, I'm telling you the gospel is the most solid evidence of the past to base it on. If you've heard the gospel, if you've believed the gospel, if you've experienced the gospel, then you have a reason to hope. Listen to how Paul describes this in Romans chapter 5. Verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into His grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Also knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand in this passage he says we have a reason to have hope. We don't just hope in glory, but we hope even because of tribulation. Tribulation works patience, patience, experience, experience works hope. And this hope we're not ashamed of because it's based on the love of God that's shed abroad in our heart. And let's talk about that love of God. When you were at your most hopeless was when you were lost in your sins. That's when you were your most hopeless. It's not today. It's not when you lost your job. It's not when you felt the pressure of the world. It was when you were lost in your sins. You see, because when we were lost in our sins, we were enemies of the Most High God, the Bible says. Enemies. We were avowed enemies of God. I'm reminded of what Job lamented before Christ came. He said, oh, that there were a daysman who could go between me and God. One that could lay his hand on each of our shoulders and reconcile this thing together. Do you understand that before Christ came, before the gospel, there was no intermediary. There was no way of eternal reconciliation between us and God. When we were lost, we had been weighed and found wanting. When we were lost, we had been tried and found guilty. In fact, Ephesians gives a great assessment, an accurate assessment of our condition. Ephesians 2 says this, Wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, that's unsaved, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world. Now that's a hopeless situation. And that's a situation that we were powerless to change. You see, when you were lost, when I was lost, when we were in our sins, we were hopeless because we were condemned already. Jesus said it in John three eighteen. The jury was not out. The judge had already decreed guilty. You were a breath away from eternal damnation in hell. Do you realize that? You were one breath away from eternal damnation in hell. I'm telling you, the most hopeless situation you were ever in was when you were lost in your sins. But God. But God. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, in our most hopeless condition... Christ died for us. Isn't that a past evidence that gives us hope for a future good? Isn't when I look back, when you look back at the gospel, as Paul is pointing the Colossians to look back to the word of truth of the gospel, when you look back at that evidence of the past and you say, look what God did for me when I was lost, when I was my most hopeless, when I was an enemy of His, God did that for me. I mean, if God would do that for us, while we were his enemies, what will he do for us now that we are his sons and daughters? If God did that for you when you were his enemy, what do you think he's going to do for you now that you're his son or daughter? You know, God said that to us in Romans 8. 
What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And so Paul says, Colossians, you have hope. You have hope reserved for you in heaven because of the past evidence of the gospel. The gospel gives me hope because if God did that for me then, I have no doubt that he's going to do good for me now. The world might be falling apart, but listen, God's not. The world might be losing its mind, but let me tell you, God's children aren't. The world might experience the judgment of God, but Jesus took my wrath for me. So I don't have to fear that. You don't have to fear that. But remember, hope is not only based on past evidence, but it can also be based on the trustworthiness of the person who makes the promise. And so for that reason, heaven gives us hope. The gospel gives us hope, according to Colossians 1.5. But heaven also gives us hope. You see, while the immediate circumstances of life may seem less than hopeful, the promise of heaven gives us hope that we can look forward to. If we had time, we have time. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is the first day of phase 2. We have time. Now, I want you to hear it from God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Heaven ought to give you hope. When you look around at the world, I understand being discouraged. It's a mess. It's full of lost people. They don't know God. They don't know Christ. They're acting in their own sinfulness. But let me tell you something. You have something better in store for you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. You see that there? A lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, that's in heaven, incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. You who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now as for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Yes, friend, it is possible to have our immediate situation to be troublesome and tribulation and yet to still have hope because heaven is waiting for us. Think about who made that promise. The person who made the promise is the Lord Jesus Christ. He cannot lie. He can't, he can't not tell the truth. And His resurrection ensures that the promise is good. Paul said in one place, Christ is our hope. If Christ promised you heaven, then you have a heaven to hope in. But not only that, what about the place that is promised? Heaven Heaven is the most amazing place. It's unlike any other place in the world. It's a real place because that's where God's at. Our Father, which art in? 
Well, it's got to be somewhere, doesn't it? It's a real place. It's a secure place. It's unassailable. Do you understand? Nobody's going to attack heaven. Nobody's going to invade heaven. Nobody's going to riot heaven. It's untouchable. In, in Matthew 6.30, Jesus said that thieves don't break through and steal, and moth and rust does not corrupt anything in heaven. What you have in heaven is secure. It's a perfect place. There's no sin there. Revelation chapter 21 says that nothing will enter in that is defiled. Revelation 22 says there's no more curse. I'm telling you, you and I have hope even though we look around at this world and say, man, this place is falling apart. We can look at heaven and say it is safe, it is secure, it is real, and it is perfect, and it's mine. The promise of heaven is personal. It's for you. Look back with me one more time. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Oh, we're coming in for a landing. And we're lowering the landing gear. I'm throttling back. Hang with me. Colossians 1, 5. For the hope which is laid up for who? You. It's laid up for you in heaven. The promise of heaven is personal. It's for you. That's a personal, possessive pronoun for you. And it's guaranteeing it for every individual believer. Do you believe in Christ? Then he says, you have hope in heaven. Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am there, you may be also. It is personal. Take it personal. So Christian, the world may feel like it's falling apart, but you and I have an immutable hope that anchors our soul during this storm. Would you bow with me? So we bow our heads for just a moment.